Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts. Now, last week I, I talked to you guys and shared how the book of Acts, especially chapter 17, has got so much information on how we can better share our faith. I believe there's a lot of things in this chapter that help us to just understand what's necessary to communicate this message of Jesus Christ to other people. There's basically three areas that are covered in this chapter. Paul goes to Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, and then he goes to Athens. And the journey, as far as how much distance, it's about 350 miles that he travels. Think about that without a car. Uh, think about doing that on foot. 100 miles is about a week's journey. So we're, we're covering a lot of time just in traveling. I mean, we're talking about, you know, probably over a month worth of just traveling by walking from one place to another. Isn't that amazing, just walking? I mean, I had one day of work where I actually drove 320 miles that day just traveling from work. I think I went down to San Diego to Newport to, like, Burbank or something insane. You know, just no human should have to do that. But he did it on foot, you know. That's even worse. <laughs> I know. Some of you are saying, I do that regularly. I, I, I saw you that. <laughs> 320, that's nothing. I go cry. Well, anyway, Paul goes through these three different areas. And in all these areas, there's some things that piqued my interest. Is just I would read them. In verse 2, in Thessalonica, it says that he reasoned with the people. In verse 11, when he's in Berea, it says that they examined or, or kind of looked into and, and scrutinized the things that he said. And in verse 18 in Athens, it says that he disputed. And all these words have this connection of conversation, of something taking place that is going back and forth, whether it is reasoning and and kind of discussing the things, whether it's disputing and debating what's going on, or it's examining and spending time there and talking about what was being said and having time to process what is said, there is time spent with people. In one instance, we're going to see that it's over three Sabbaths. So it's not like, here's what I have to say, that's it. He did it over three weeks period of time. Think of how that would impact our conversation if you were going to talk with someone and said, hey, I'll talk to you again next week. And hey, I'll talk to you again next week. So many times we feel when we're communicating our faith, we have to do it all. Because we've all heard the story of what happens if you leave and they die and you didn't give them the whole message. Oh no, it's on you. Ah! And, you know, and there's this panic. If God prompts your heart to say everything that you know, then say everything you know. But you know what? Sometimes you're going to see him again. Maybe tomorrow at work. And maybe the next day at work. Maybe the next day at work. And so if you unload your gun all at once and you come back tomorrow, what are you going to share? Same thing over and over again? Well, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start in verse 1. And let's read verses 1 through 9 and see Paul's journey to Thessalonica. When they had passed through Amphilo 
Amphilopolis, uh, you know, Amphilopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to, uh, to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Boy, Paul stirs it up wherever he goes, doesn't he? How'd you like? If you're going to have Paul over to your house, you better be ready. Something's going to happen. Hey, Paul, why don't you stay with us? Think about that before you do it. So Paul goes in, and it, I, I think it's interesting because he passes through these two cities that names are hard to pronounce. And it's kind of funny because these are actually small, out-of-the-way towns. They don't have a large population. And we see that one of the things that Paul did when he was traveling is he tried to target big places. The smaller towns, he just bypassed them. He'd stay there, but he didn't stay there very long. He just kind of went through them. He liked to go where there was a lot of people. And it seemed like his, I don't know if you'd call it strategy, but one of the things that he did was go to the place where there was a larger population, ministered to that area where there is a lot of people, get those people to respond and then allow those people to respond to the smaller places. We've kind of romanticized the idea you go where there's just hardly anybody and thank God people have gone to places that are distant and remote where there's a few people. But you know, it's really wise to go to a place where there's more people and let those places start kind of taking care of the smaller places. Because there's more people where the bigger places are. And so you can have a bigger impact. One of the things I've shared before is the idea of pagan. Where we get that word from is it actually means country dweller. And it was, at the early times, the places that were very populated in the cities, that's where the church grew, that's where people came to faith, and the ones who didn't have faith were in the places like this, in Ampophilus or whatever that place is. The, those outer places, those were the ones that didn't have people of faith because they were just the smaller towns, and so that's where the pagans were. And so they would get the people to understand in the larger metropolis areas, the bigger places, get them to understand who Jesus is, 
as they ministered to them, then they would take their faith to the smaller places. This actually played into my mind when I was thinking about going up to St. Helena in the Napa region. I don't know how many people are there in St. Helena, but it's a small community. The, the main drag there, <laughs> drag, that's interesting. Anyway, the main furrow, the, the street there, the, the big town, it's about two blocks long, and that's St. Helena. There's these shops, and they're real ritzy, and the price for homes was real expensive, and there weren't a lot of people in this one area, but there was a need for a church. It's not like, well, no, forget them. God's doing a work in the people there, but I just felt like, do I really want to invest my life and time here in this small community? And I wrestled with it because I loved the people. The people were great there, and I loved the food. The food was really good there, and the scenery was beautiful. It was just gorgeous. In fact, I was communicating with Bill, who the pastor at Cornerstone in Napa on Facebook. He, he said he, he spoke at Montebello uh, last night, and he said he was back from L.A., and he says he doesn't like Southern California. He's glad he's not in Southern California, and I commented back to him, hick, you know, you. <laughs> but it is beautiful there. But I just felt like going there, I almost felt like I was retiring. <laughs> I really did. It's like I was going to go to old folks' homes, and I was just going to hang out there. And I, I just, in my mind, I just felt like, you know what, if I'm going to go someplace, I want to go where there's people that I can communicate with and have more ability to communicate to more people. It really weighed on my mind and my heart. And really, that's something that played in Paul's mind as well. Go where there's people. Go where there's people. And as his custom, he went to the synagogue first because that's where he had a foundation he could work from. Paul was a rabbi. He had knowledge of the scriptures. He would be welcomed in that custom to speak because of who he was. And so he was able from there to communicate. And it says that he was there for three Sabbaths and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And I love that. He communicated with them from the scriptures. And what did he communicate? He communicated and explained I love it. He said he explained and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead according to the scriptures. Now, there's obviously a few places where we know about Christ's crucifixion, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. It kind of deals prophetically about Jesus' dying according to the scriptures. And there was two thoughts about this because there was a lot of wonder and confusion in that area of how the Messiah was going to be uh, a Messiah that was reigning. And so they called it Messiah Ben David because David was the king. But they also had a Messiah Ben Joseph because Joseph was someone who suffered and went through a hardship. And so there was this two ideas of Messiah Ben David, Messiah Ben Joseph. How is the Messiah going to be portrayed? And so Paul went and went through the scriptures and explained these things. And I love in Psalm 16, verse 10, where it talks about rising from the dead is something that Jesus actually quoted, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. 
And so can you imagine Paul going through and opening the scriptures to these passages and saying, see, David is not talking about himself because David did see decay. Who is this about? It is about Messiah. How could Messiah not see decay? What is that talking about? It's talking first about his death. And you can see Paul trying to communicate and reason with these people from the scriptures that they already embraced of who the Messiah was and how he was supposed to suffer. He was supposed to die and he would rise again from the dead. And as he did these things, saying that Jesus was indeed the Christ, in verse 4 it says, some Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. The light bulb went on for some and they were persuaded. And then a large number of Gentiles. Now, God-fearing Gentiles. Remember what had taken place. For a Gentile to be God-fearing and to be proselytized, they had to come under the Jewish law. They had to go through circumcision. We talked about that in the past weeks. And so now this good news of Jesus Christ, you don't have to obey all the things of the law. You are free in Christ. This was great news. And a large number of Gentiles started responding to this because they were not required to do the legal obligations that were placed, the Jews were placing on them, they were free now to just come to God as they were. And it says many prominent or wealthy women also came to them. And so here's this great thing that's taking place, this good news. Notice that Paul reasoned with them. He stayed there for three weeks' time. He spent time with them. It wasn't just a here's a track, see you later. It was time discussing these things, and he actually persuaded some of them. So much so that they they started to get jealous. They rounded up a group of bad characters. I like how it says some of the translations, you know, that are kind of unique, how it explains these people. It's a motley crew, basically. They got some of the lowlife to come out and start making just a riotous you know, commotion about these people, and they did. And as they did this, it says in verse... Six, these men who have caused trouble all over the world, some translations who have turned the world upside down, it says in the King James. And I love that. These guys are changing things. They're causing a commotion. Let me ask you, are you causing a commotion? Are you turning anyone's world upside down? Or is it pretty easy going? They were changing people's lives. Turning the world upside down. People were hearing about it. People were responding it, up to it. God was doing something in the lives of people. And the way the outsiders looked at it is they're turning our world upside down. They're changing things. They're making a commotion. I remember in Wales, when the revival at the beginning of the century took place, all the pubs closed down because no one was going to them. Turning the world upside down. It's like the, they had to go out of business because no one was going. So many people were coming to faith that they stopped going out and getting drunk. Imagine all the bartenders, you know, complaining. We got to stop this. People not getting drunk anymore. Changing how people live and it changes the world around them. You know, instead of, you know, picketing against the pubs, we got to stop these pubs. They just changed the lives of the people, and that stopped it. And so here the change takes place with these people inside out. And poor Jason 
you know, Paul and Silas are staying at his house. People find out they go there. For some reason, they're not there that day. They went out to dinner, whatever happened. They were out somewhere else, but they found Jason there and some of the people in his house. They drag him out. The guy has to pay a bond. The idea is that he had to make an agreement not to deal with these people, pay some kind of fine, apparently. And Paul and Silas, as we're going to see, are able to sneak out through the night and get away. And once again, we see that there is a cost to following Jesus, but it was a cost that people were willing to count. Whenever there's persecution, there is revival. It's interesting how they go hand in hand. When people are persecuted, when people's faith is really challenged, that's when the, the strong faith really stands up. And so poor Jason, he gets dragged out of his house and he's just thrown into this situation. And when they tell him, you know, you have to post bond or take a pledge, the idea is you, you've got to deal with this. You've got to pay up for the commotion that is caused. And apparently he paid. I guess his alternatives weren't very good. So that's the case. And then in verse 10, we see Paul goes on to Berea. And Berea is about 50 miles from Thessalonica. So maybe three, four days journey, depending on when they traveled. And as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So again, they have to scoot off during the night. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Again, that was their custom. This is where they have a connection. And it's so important to realize they went there for a reason. It was because it, was a con it made sense to go to the synagogue. I have something. They just talked about how they reasoned from the scriptures. Well, the synagogue, they believed the scriptures. And so they go to a place where they have something in common, something where they can share with them in. And it says, Now the Bereans were more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if Paul said what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Again, there were people who were affluent as well who believed. And so he goes to this area of the Bereans and, and they believed. And it's great because it says that they believed and were noble of character because they received this message with great eagerness. And they looked into it deeply. They didn't just believe it they wanted to know they were diligent to study and then they were willing to accept the truth what a great combination first to be willing to listen and then to want to know so much that you you're diligent to actually find out more information about it and when you find out the truth you actually respond to it what a great thing that's why they were so noble is because they spent time investigating in these things, studying the scriptures on their own. They didn't just take Paul's word for it. They looked into it themselves. And as they looked into these things, it says many of them believed and, and responded to them again in this way. Now, we know from this point here regarding just Berea that Paul had with him other people. In 1 Thessalonians, it talks about his journey uh, in verse, or chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. He says, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, 
Out of our intent longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. This is talking about how they were pushed out of there because of the commotion that was raised up. Well, that commotion followed them. Because we see in verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there also. They went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So once again, these people who are following Paul, man, they're determined. Again, it's not like they're going to just make a phone call. They're going to type something and post it on the Internet. They have to travel 50 miles to make a ruckus. They were intent, and they no doubt believed what they were doing was God's work, just like Saul did before he became Paul. Persecuting the church, which is a scary thing, makes you wonder, where am I at? When I'm diligent to, to you know, stand up against something, I need to be careful that I don't do it blindly. I need to be sensitive to God's spirit and how I deal with people. Because if you deal harshly with people, then you are not dealing with the heart of God. And that, whether it's Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, someone who is involved with another religion, how you deal with people is very important, even when they're wrong. Because the purpose isn't to prove someone wrong, it is to help someone see what is right. And that's what we don't see with Paul at the beginning when he was persecuting the church, and we don't see with these people. They're not trying to help them see what's right. They're doing it out of jealousy. They're agitating people, just trying to make oppression, and that's not the heart of God. When you confront someone because you believe they're wrong, what spirit are you doing it in? How are you doing it? Is it just to prove yourself right? Is it just to get them in trouble? Is it just to make them look bad? Or is it to help them to see the truth? What spirit are we doing this in? It's very important. Because it's easy to fall into this place. I've done it. Where I've disagreed with someone and I've just argued. My point, why I'm right, why you're wrong. Why? What's my purpose? What's my intent? Is it just to prove myself right? Got to be careful. Got to be careful because it's easy to see these things and to point fingers and say, wow, you know, these people, they're wrong. That, that's not the way to do things. But at the same time, what's the reason we're doing it? Is it motivated by God's love? And once again, we see that Paul spends time there until he's forced out of there. He doesn't just, again, hand out tracts and then split. He gets to mingle with the people. He communicates with them. He's there. They're examining the scriptures, no doubt. He's talking to them about the things that he talked to them, even at Thessalonica, going through the scriptures, that common ground that they had. And from that common ground that he could reason with them at, that's where he communicated with them. Now he goes to Athens. Athens 
is a whole new ball game. As he goes there, let's read verses 16 through 21 first. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, because remember he had a split in a hurry, he was waiting for both uh, Timothy and Silas to come down there, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, where he was used to, with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute. And there's that word again. To dispute means to to talk, to argue, to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul is now in Athens, and Athens is full of idolatry, full of temples to the goddess of Diana. They had, they had temples and idols for everything you can imagine. Whatever you enjoyed, you could worship. If it was drinking, if it was sex, if it was philosophy and just studying the thoughts of the mind, if it was abstinence and structure, there was a God for you to worship there. And Athens is kind of the the home for human wisdom. Socrates, Plato, the adopted home of Aristotle. It's where all the wisdom of man came from. It was known for those things. In fact, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about these things. And as Paul is wandering there, you know, he's got kicked out of Berea and he's hanging out now in Athens and he's walking around. Yeah, he went to the synagogue where he reasoned and talked to the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, those who believed in the one God and identified with the God of Israel. But in the marketplace, he started spending time too. Which if you take the ratio, that means he was in the synagogue one day a week and he was in the marketplace six days a week. So he spent his one day there, and the rest of the time he's hanging out in the city streets talking to people, taking it in. Have you ever gone to another country or a place that's just unique and foreign, and they do things different? And you have to kind of get used to their custom. When we went to China years ago, I was amazed. It'd be 2 o'clock in the morning, and there are thousands of people on the street at 2 in the morning riding bicycles everywhere. Where are they going? I don't know, because they don't speak Chinese, but there they are. They're going. I saw a guy riding a bike with a couch on top of his shoulders at two in the morning. Just different. I was amazed. It was like, that was a circus act. How can you ride a bike and carry a couch at a time? How can you see? And there he is in the middle of the morning. When we went to Wales, Starbucks closed at 5 o'clock. <laughs> What's with that? 
That's that's when you're getting started. That's you know, ten o'clock. You got to have a cup of coffee. No, don't close down at five o'clock. But now everything's shut down at five o'clock. Everything, all the stores closed down, except the pubs. That's when they opened. And you see, there is just a whole different scene. All the businesses closed, all the pubs open, and the pubs would stay open all night. You go to different places, and there is a different identity of how that society lives that you, you kind of get used to or have to get used to, have to know. Otherwise, you'll be looking for a cup of coffee at 7 o'clock, and if you don't know it closes at 5, you're out of luck. Paul goes into Athens, and all of a sudden, there's this whole new surroundings. Now, Paul grew up in Troas. He, he knew the Greek culture, but he was moved at this point. In fact, in verse 16, it says he was distressed. And that's an important word. That, that word means friction. It has the idea of sharpening. It's like... You know, when you get that knife and you put it on that, you know, sharpener and you hear that shik, shik, or the nails on the chalkboard, that friction, it, it has the idea of grinding against something. Something irked him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. It irked him so much that what happened? He started disputing. In the synagogues, as well as in the marketplace. He didn't just go to church or the synagogue. He went out to where the situation was. So many times we have a mentality of people need to come to us. But Paul went to them. Now, how he did this, it, it, I love it how it says just in the marketplace. He just started communicating with people. You know, maybe he went to the local, you know, coffee shop at that time, whatever they had for coffee. And he sat down and he started talking to the owner there. And he started just reasoning with him and disputing with him about the things that he believed, the things that Paul believed. Because word got around. Paul was talking to enough people that pretty soon they wanted to hear more about this. And so they called him to the place where they just talked about these things. What sparks my interest in, in this portion of Scripture, and we're going to talk more about it a little more in depth on Sunday, but what sparks my interest is the communication that takes place between Paul and people. Enough so that people hear about him and ask to hear more. And I wonder about ourselves and how we communicate. If it's enough to spark people's interest, to talk to them, to hear them, and to hear them out. Because as they call him up and they start talking to him, in verse 22 he goes on and he says, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens! I see that in every way you are very religious, or it might say superstitious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, 
what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Wow, what an opening. This is just very insightful. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Crafty, think about it. You could just see Paul stewing this in his mind. Hey, we want you to come up to the Areopagus, this bald rock with all these temples around it that are just magnificent looking in all their splendor, all these, you know, pagan and, and just foreign gods, these heathen gods, this idolatry. Come up here and tell us what you think. Paul's, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And he sees this one to the unknown God because they worshiped anything. And if there was one they didn't know who he was, well, let's worship him just in case we forgot one of them. We'll worship the unknown God. And Paul says, you know that statue, the unknown God? Well, I want you to know who he is. Now, what he has just done is gone into their culture and from their point of view, remember, he's not in the synagogue anymore. He's in the marketplace. He's talking to those who have worshipped false gods, who are involved with idolatry, involved with the Epicureans and the Stoics, the Epicureans. Um, they would be kind of like the eat, drink, be merry crowd. You know, party hardy, because this is all there is. You, you, you live and then you die. That's it. The Stoics were a little bit more structured. You might consider them more in the, the Buddhist vein where they're trying to be disciplined in their life and just abstain from anything. That way you can obtain true understanding and enlightenment. So he's got these different people, but they are not aware of or versed in the scriptures as they are in the synagogues, as they were in Thessalonica, as they were in Berea. And what he does is he starts where they're at, just like he did in Thessalonica and just like he did in Berea. He started where they were at. Here he starts with, you know that unknown God? And they're all, yeah, we know about that. We've crossed that you know, statue on the way to the butcher shop every day or whatever. Because I want to let you know who he is. Hey, okay, tell, say on. Speak on there, Paul. And so, in verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Paul then jumps right in to declaring the true and living God. Now, these first verses in verse 24, the world and everything that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, it should ring familiar to us because this is kind of what he did in chapter, I think it was 14, in Lyceria when they tried to worship him and Barnabas. 
And he said, no, don't worship us. We're just men. You're supposed to worship the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. It's very similar how he starts off here as how he started off there. And that's important for, for this reason. There, is, uh, there are a few people who believe that Paul was in error through this portion of Athens because he does not quote scripture and he does not talk about Jesus crucified. And they say that Paul did not do what he, he told the Corinthians, I came to know nothing but Christ and him crucified among you. I didn't come with human wisdom. And they say, oh, Paul saw the error of his ways in Athens and he changed the error of his ways and then later on started preaching Christ and him crucified. I think that's dangerous, personally. Because nothing in this passage says that Paul felt like he made a mistake. And for us to say, I think Paul made a mistake, and then try and pull other passages to support that, I think is not good exegesis. It's not good way of evaluating the scriptures, especially since we see that Paul did the same thing in chapter 14. What I think this is, is incredibly wise and understanding how Paul dealt with this. But you got to understand, this is a very controversial chapter because what Paul is doing is not something that you are usually hearing about how we are supposed to deal with things. For example, Paul went into this culture. He did not quote the scripture, but he told the truth of scripture. Why didn't he quote scripture? Why didn't he say, thou shalt not commit idolatry? Because they didn't believe the scripture. They didn't understand the scripture. He would have to go back and explain what that meant, how God dealt with the nation of Israel, why he said these things. And so instead of going back, 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 back and having to explain, 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 he started here and he presented the truth of scripture in a way that they could understand, not taking them back to a place where Okay, what does that have to do with what you're trying to convey? Let's start where you're at. You're involved in idolatry. Now, I'm not going to call you an idolater. In fact, I'm going to say you're very religious. You're, you're superstitious. Some say, well, that was a slam. No, it wasn't. Because he didn't say you're idolaters. He said you're religious. Superstitious. And then he went to point to them how their superstition doesn't make sense. God doesn't live in temples made with hands or need us. He created everything. And he appealed to what he appealed to them earlier before. Come on, think about this. What he talks about in Romans, the invisible things of creation clearly display who God is. And you're going to worship this rock? Come on. Does that make sense to you? And you see, they knew yeah, that doesn't make sense. God doesn't need men's hands. Things that worship. And then he goes on and he talks about just God's, not only his glory, but he talks about God's government and how he's dealt with this one man, Jesus. But he doesn't mention his name here. He just talks about this one man. But we know that he mentioned Jesus earlier because it says so in verse... Um, where is it? In verse 18, the good news about Jesus... And the resurrection. So we know that Jesus' name was there. It's not like he was avoiding the name. 
But he started talking to them about some things and just this one person who God established in all the nations. And he even says that God placed people where they're supposed to be at the times so that he could actually reach people. That he gives breath to everything. And from this one man, every nation sprung out so that the whole earth that he has determined when people would be born, exactly where they should live. And he did this so that men would seek him and perhaps find him. In other words, God placed you here in Athens just so you could perhaps find God. And he placed them in Israel so that they could find God. And it's an amazing thing that God would place people in different places in the world with different beliefs in a way that they could find God. Well, how can they find God in Athens? I mean, they're so steeped in idolatry. Well, then he goes to their own prophets, their own poets, and brings out the truth of who God is from pagan, heathen philosophers. Now, that's where there's controversy. Because the people he quotes, they're not people of faith. They do not believe in the God of Israel. In fact, a lot of the things that they say throughout their writings are false. But Paul pulls out the things that are true to point them to the truth. Now, I want to be clear how and what we are to do with this information. And more than that, I want you to think about what this means to you in talking to people and communicating to people. A lot of times what we try and do is point out everything that is wrong with a person's belief. You're talking to a young man, a young woman, and their idea of God is a combination of Christian, Buddhist, you know, Muslim, I believe a little of this and I take some of this and I kind of got this smorgasbord of religions that I put together. And what we tend to do is say, well, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. And pretty soon they say, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I understand what's wrong. Instead of saying, well, you know, there are things in the Muslim faith that are very similar. One God. I remember Sami Tanaga, who ministers to Muslims. One of the things he says is that Muslims are very religious. Ooh, you men of Athens are very religious. He finds something that's in common with them. You Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet. Oh, the Bible talks about that. You believe that he's unique. The Bible talks about it. And he finds the things that are in common and that's where he starts. That's where he builds. And then he brings them to a place of clearer understanding. In 1 Kings chapter 4, Elisha is there eating and this young kid goes out and he gets this root. And he, he chops it up and he throws it in the pot to cook. And they start eating this stew and they go, ah, there's death in the pot. It's poison. It's bitter. Something is really bad about this stew. And Elisha says, don't throw it out. Get some flour, pour some good stuff into it. And now you can eat it. Instead of 
slamming people with all the things that are wrong, what about finding the areas where you can bring common ground and pour something good in it so that it becomes something that they could start palating and seeing the true and living God? You're not compromising what you believe. You're not saying, well, your God is the same God as Allah. We're not saying that. He's not. They're totally different. But what we're doing is finding where they're at, adding the truth to it, so that they can see a better understanding of what really is true. Instead of just saying, get out. That, that's... Because what do you do when someone comes up and says, hey, what you believe is wrong? Do you say, tell me more? Or do you say, hey, who do you think you are? I know what I believe. You become defensive. And when you're defensive, it's not easy to talk. It's not. And Paul didn't come and put them on the defensive. What he did is he came, met them where they're at, and started putting what is good on what's happening. The next chapter in First Kings chapter 5, we have the story where Elisha is confronted by Naaman. Naaman, who is from Syria, who has leprosy. And you know the story, you're probably familiar with, where Elisha says, go and dip yourself in the Jordan. And he does, and he comes out whole, and he's clean. And, and when he's just about done, Naaman says, I'm going to take two bags of dirt with me back to Syria so that I can worship the living God. Why did he do that? That's a stupid thing. Because they believed that where you worship, the ground in that territory is where God dwelt. And so he wanted to take the dirt from Israel back to his home so he could have a place to worship. Elisha didn't say, you know, Naaman, that's stupid. You don't need to do that. He said, go in peace. Why would he say that? He's picking his battles. That's not a battle I need to worry about. That's something small. God will deal with you with that later. Paul starts where they're at, and he ministers to them where they're at. We need to be wise in picking our battles. We need to be wise in communicating where people are at and putting something good into what is there instead of trying to just slam them with all the things that are wrong. Because we put them on the defensive and the doors shut and they don't want to hear us anymore. What happens with Paul? I got, I got to get through this. Verse 29 says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers, apparently a few that were part of the council of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. They wanted to hear more about it. They said, oh, the resurrection, oh, we don't believe in that, no resurrection. There was something that confronted them that they didn't believe. 
it's not up to us whether they believe it or not. How we communicate it is important. Paul didn't say, well, I'm going to, you know, I know they're going to laugh at the resurrection, so I won't mention it. And it's not up to us to change the message. We can't. That's wrong. It's up to us to present the message in a way that is clear, to help them understand. And finding where people are at and ministering to them where they at are so important. When you talk to someone, do you know what they believe about God? Or do you just start talking to them? Do you listen? Do you dispute? Do you reason? Do you dialogue with them to find out what their beliefs are? You can have people who are involved with thrasher heavy metal music and they could have a serious form of justice as far as their core is concerned. If you talk to them about right and wrong, that's a place where you can start. Or do you just say, oh, no, that music's of the devil. That's, yeah, it sounds like demons. You can't talk to them. Oh, that's all. That's all. No, you know. Or do you find out where they're at and what they believe, and then from where they're believing, start ministering to them? Do you listen to them? Because if they don't think you're listening, they're not going to spend time talking. Why should I talk to you if you're not going to listen to me? If all you want to do is talk and you don't want to listen, forget it. But if they understand, we want to listen. And what if you quoted Metallica to some kid? You can't quote Metallica. Paul quoted the pagan philosophers. What, what are today's poets? I know you might not think Metallica's poetry, but <laughs> some people do. Do you know what these things are? Music is one of today's big avenues of communication. Do you know what music's popular? Oh, I can't listen to that music. I can't read those things. Paul was versed in these things with a purpose, to communicate the truth. We have to have purpose in communication. We have to be determined to try and make clear what we believe to people so that they can understand it. We need to take time to listen, to understand where people are so that we can communicate effectively the truth of who Jesus is and what that means to them. If we won't take time, if all we want to do is read our four spiritual laws and there's nothing wrong with those things, some people that clicks with, some people it doesn't. And we live in a society where one size does not fit all. The message is the same. It's the truth that will save people for eternity. The message doesn't change. But there are people who, coming from all different places, we've got people who believe in Buddhism, we have people who are agnostic, we have people who are, you know, vegans, and that's part of their religion. And it's like, what does that mean? Well, do you know? Do you know where they're coming from? Do you know what things you can minister to them? Find out before you just start blabbering so that you can communicate effectively. And maybe you can find out where they're at and start pouring something good into it. So they start saying, you know what, that makes sense. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands or with silver or gold or things that are made by man. That doesn't make sense. What you said, that makes sense. And allow God to take that and reason 
with them where they're at so that they can clearly see the gospel. It's really important, but it takes time and it takes investment, and sometimes that's our weakness. We don't like to invest the time to learn about where people are at because we just want to fill ourselves with the things that we enjoy. I don't like to listen to that kind of music. Well, if you're trying to reach your son or, or your daughter or your niece or someone, maybe you should listen to that music and find out what, what's happening. Get involved with that culture and then be wise in what battles you pick. I've picked some bad battles. You know, it's like, ah, I shouldn't have fought over that. Looking back, it's like, that wasn't a good battle to fight over. I remember my brother and my sister-in-law with their kids, one of the battles they never fought over was hair. My nephew, my niece, they'd have pink hair, they'd have green hair. You know, it'd be wild, it'd be dreadlocks. You want green hair? Have green hair. That's not a battle we're going to fight. But then there were other battles that they did fight. And, and how wise is that to pick wise places to make a stand and not just anything? Oh, you want to take some dirt back to Syria? Go for it. It's just dirt. God will deal with you. God will capture your heart once you start there. And so let's be wise. And I better stop because it's getting long. Anyway, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I do ask, Lord, that you would help us to be wise in these things and just... I don't know, thinking about this, I probably should have split this chapter into two uh, studies so I could spend more time. But, Lord, I, I pray that we would um, just be able to grasp how important it is to communicate effectively with people. Even as it, we see Paul doing that time and time again, he was effective speaking to, to the Greeks, he was effective speaking to the Jews. Lord, he, he knew his audience, and he knew what to say that would capture their attention and point them to you. Lord, he didn't depend on wisdom, but he did use it to his advantage and allowed you to use him in a mighty way. He, he was wise as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. Lord, help us to be the same. Help us to reason with people. Help us to dispute Help us to listen, God, to find out where people are at and then to do our homework so that we can recognize what is needed to add to the pot that's going to make this good. Lord, give us wisdom in this area and I pray that we would never compromise the truth but to be able to declare it effectively and clearly. Lord, give us wisdom because this is important. This involves eternity. This involves the people who are lost. This involves those that we love. God, help us to be clear. Help us to be wise. And I pray that we take these things to heart. And I do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.